On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today we continue this installment of the E-Series with Exploring Our Community, Navigating Health Disparities at End of Life, a conversation between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and Dr. Homa Muggsy, Hospice of the Piedmont's Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer. Let's get started. Trent joined Hospice of the Piedmont in 2013 as the organization's third CEO since its founding in 1981. He has 25 years in healthcare leadership. Most recently, he led the organization in navigating a successful merger with Hospice of Randolph. Thanks for being with us again today, Trent. Good to see you, Ryan. Great to be here. Thank you. Dr. Homa Muggsy joined Hospice of the Piedmont in October 2020 as the Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer. Board certified in both family medicine and hospice and palliative medicine, she is also fellowship trained in geriatric medicine. After receiving her undergraduate education at James Madison University in Virginia, she attended medical school at the Ibero-American University in the Dominican Republic. This was followed by a family medicine residency at the University of Nebraska Medical Center with focused training on the urban underserved population and international health. After that, she went on to complete a geriatric medicine fellowship at the University of Wisconsin Hospital and Clinics with focused training on hospice and palliative medicine. Over the course of her career, Dr. Muggsy has served as medical director and or associate medical director for three other hospice organizations and a skilled nursing facility. She also has medical volunteer experience in both Mexico and Guatemala, and she speaks both Spanish and Urudu. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Muggsy. Thanks, glad to be here. I know you two have uh, much to talk about, so let's jump right into the conversation. Trent, I'll leave it to you. Thanks so much, Ryan. Dr. Muggsy, it's so great for you to be a guest today. Um, And by the way, welcome again uh, to Hospice of the Piedmont and to North Carolina. Um, You know, most recently having relocated from Florida, it's been wonderful to have you here, uh, having joined our organization back in uh, October. So it's been it's been great to get to know you and uh, look forward to the conversation that I know we're going to have today. You know, as I think about sort of the topics that we're going to talk about today, um, it it might be really interesting just to talk about your own sort of personal experience, right? Um, and you grew up in Virginia, but but you didn't grow up with Virginia parents, right? I mean, right, it's a yeah. little bit of a different experience for you. Might you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, sure. Um, yeah, now I'm happy to share a little bit about my background. Um, it's really shaped and formed how I approach hospice and palliative care. Uh, in my career as well. So, uh, so I do, yeah, I, I'm happy to share that. So um, I was born in Maryland and on the East Coast um, to Pakistani immigrants. Uh, both my parents were born in Pakistan and moved here before I was born, obviously, and uh, grew up on the East Coast. I also spent some time in Europe as a child, lived in Holland for a little while, Denmark for a little while, uh, came back to Virginia, did my high school undergrad, um, and then 
ended up in the Dominican Republic doing medical school. And um, that was a, a great experience, a very rich experience of being immersed in a third world country, uh, learning Spanish, um, being immersed in a completely different culture. Um, but I do think that my life experiences up until that point helped support that transition and made it a little bit easier for me having lived abroad and being accustomed to working with people that were different from me. Um, and so I uh, did medical school, came back, ended up at going to university, at, no, coming back to Nebraska, worked as a social worker briefly in a, in a nursing home. And uh, that also really helped um, sort of shape my journey into the world of geriatrics and experiencing a lot of end of life um, situations in the nursing home setting as well. Um, so I went on to do a uh, family medicine residency at University of Nebraska in Omaha with a special focus on the urban underserved population. Um, having done my training in, in the Dominican Republic, I was very comfortable uh, interacting with patients who spoke Spanish primarily. And so that population, uh, the majority of my primary care practice or my, my regular routine follow-up for patients were patients who were typically illegal immigrants. Um, most of them were from Mexican um, descent, um, but just a, a wide variety of, of folks. And so, so I had the hospital exposure. I also had that primary care clinic experience. Um, and then I moved on to a geriatrics fellowship because life had sort of moved me in that direction. Um, and so went to Wisconsin there and really truly just loved uh, the hospice and palliative care component in geriatrics and ended up doing further training in that. Um, and since then, you know, life just has, has taken me where I needed to be. I've worked in Wisconsin, Illinois, um, Florida, and here, and, and each time, um, it's just, it's been, it's been great because even each state has its own sort of culture to it. Um, so it's been, it's been very rewarding. Sure. Well, I appreciate your willingness to share some of that. So, so as you think about your work in the urban underserved and, you know, throughout the last three installments of this series, we've had discussions related to really broad topics, health disparities and health equity and health equality. And we've learned sort of the nuances of each of those. But as you, as you think about those really broad topics, how do you think that the, the, your work with the urban underserved has really shaped the way you practice medicine? What, what understanding has it given you? You know, I think, I think the biggest thing um, is is knowing that people really appreciate the, the little things, right? Um, oftentimes, uh, all too often rather, I think folks who are underserved, um, they're used to people sort of talking over them or around them or not giving them information. There's always this sort of underlying suspicion that maybe they're not getting all the options of treatment because of their socioeconomic status. Um, and, you know, I think, I think when you do provide any level of help or care for them, there's such a deep appreciation for that. Um, I, I think that's, that's one of the biggest things. And, and just knowing that information truly is power. So whether or not someone is 
able to get a certain type of treatment or test or, or not, giving them the full the options so that they understand what those are helps them to understand why a provider may say that, no, this is what you need to do. You don't just tell them this is it, because if you do that, then, then there's always this level of mistrust of the healthcare system. So you see that sort of as I'm sure like any type of relationship, it begins to evolve. And I think what I heard you say is that at the outset, initially, there may be an element of severe mistrust um, or lack of trust, perhaps not mistrust, just lack of trust um, for building that rapport and that relationship um, for all the things that have you know, because of all the things that have sort of formed those opinions in those populations or among those groups, right? Correct. Uh, and, and so what you're really talking about, and I think you said it, is sort of beginning to gain their trust. And you gain that by helping them understand, I'm guessing, um, because I think most people, in my experience, when they begin to realize that you're being of service to them, they espouse a sense of gratefulness, right? And, there, and a willingness to accept that, that information that you may be trying to impart to them as a physician in this case, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, I think, I think too often when, when we go in and have preconceived ideas of what somebody um, should or should not be receiving, um, in their, and it may be a very medical decision, but if we don't take into account what they may be, may have experienced and what may have led them to this point, it's very hard to steer the conversation forward and, and really um, develop a connection and an understanding and a trust so that you can actually give them a treatment plan and walk that, that course with them. Otherwise you're constantly butting up against them and it's, it's just not as effective. Yeah, I think, you know, if I think back to some of the previous guests that we've had, um, it's, it's the notion of making sure that we're giving everyone the right tools for them in a way that is, in a way that the tools are accessible to them, as opposed to just deciding that everyone gets the same tool, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I think you're describing. So as you, as you, as you look back on that, that underserved population, um, you know, and you look sort of more prospectively now across um, your career um, as a practicing hospice and palliative medicine physician, what are some trends that you see as sort of this shared experience among all of these populations? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, no, I, I think there's, it, it really boils down to two or three things, right? I, I really think everybody, when you're talking about hospice palliative care patient population, right? Uh, regardless of what their background is, um, there's, there's really three things that boils down to. One, everybody has a survival instinct, right? Mm -hmm. So as, as soon as you tell somebody that they have a limited life expectancy, whether it's an acute illness or a chronic illness, that, that survival instinct kicks in. And, and once it kicks in, you know, people will respond very differently to that. Um, typically they will have a grief response 
And so either they'll be angry or they'll be depressed or they'll be in denial. Uh, they may start bargaining um, or, or they may be in full acceptance. You, you just don't know what, what will, where they'll be at that point. So, so that's one, one key thing. I think everybody's survival instinct sort of kicks in when you tell them they have a limited um, life expectancy. Um, secondly, it's not just about the patient, right? It's about their family. It's about their support system. And so when this type of news is delivered, family really just wants to help, right? Now you've got all of every family member's response to it. So they had their own grief response and then you have your patient and they all, you know, their grief response is directed towards helping the patient in whatever way they can. Um, and then this, um, you know, this can come across in very different ways, how they express that. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then I think the third thing is that the, the, the third trend I see is that people are so incredibly grateful for any help they can receive that they do receive. And so, you know, when, when you introduce a hospice or a palliative care trained professional into the mix, they are trained to address the patient's needs as well as the family's needs. And they're looking at the biological, the psychological and the social issues around it. Um, and that's, that's what, you know, th that's what my job is. That's what any hospice and palliative care provider or clinician's job is as well. So uh, it, it's easy to address those things if, you are aware that that's the that's the response you're going to get. You know what's so interesting, and as I'm listening to you talk about that, um, the the notion of a survival instinct, the people having a de a desire to help, talking about the family, and then people are grateful um, for the information they receive. Those really aren't just isolated to underserved or disparate populations. Those are sort of normal, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind as I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking these are sort of normal traits, right? So, you know, this is what everybody experiences. These are common sort of experiences that we all have, that we can all relate to regardless of our ethnicity or socioeconomic status. It's again, I think going back to the, the way we receive information, the way we build trust, the way we create a relationship. Is that fair? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I think the key thing with, with palliative care is understanding that, like you said, all people respond this way um, across whatever, um, whatever disparity we may be looking at. at every population everybody in the population responds that way. What we need to do as, um, as professionals involved in the care of these people is to understand that although everybody goes through these things, they're all, each and every one of them will express it very differently. Mm -hmm. So if you take the time to listen and hear how they express what their needs are, where, where are the, the points where you can intervene and help make, you know, help palliate, help make things easier for them, uh, then your approach will be different as yeah. well. You know, that, that makes total sense because, you know, in our organization, as you know, we talk a lot about needs, wants, and priorities. What are your needs? What are the things that you want? And how important are each of those to you, right? 
Um, and that's really what you're talking about. And I think one step further from that for us as an organization, for you as a, as a, as a, as a practicing physician, but for us as an organization is taking the time to understand the things that these individuals, these populations, these families, these people need versus just deciding that we already know what they need. Right. We don't really know what they need until they've had an opportunity to tell us what their needs are, what their wants are, and then how important each of those sort of things that they put into those buckets actually are to them. Right. Absolutely. And that's, and that's where, right. And that's where listening becomes so important, right. Yeah. Um, to, to be able to go into um, a person's life and, and just hear them and, and understand what their path has been, what their journey has been so that you can then meet them where they're at and not impose your own agenda on them. Um, if you, if you meet them where they're at and you work with them from that standpoint, you're, you're definitely going to gain so much more ground in helping them, um, whether or not they succumb to your agenda, right? So no matter, you know, if you, if you know, for example, that CPR would be a terrible thing in, in this one particular person because of their specific case, but they want it no matter what, because their survival instinct has kicked in, right? And, and they, they don't, they, they don't want to compromise that. Um, you have to meet them where they're at and, and you work with them, um, based on what their values are. And, um, and, and I think the beauty of, you know, of a hospice organization, um, ours in particular, and, and across all hospices truly is that once and if we're able to identify what it is that a patient needs, we have the resources to meet them, right? So if they have a spiritual need, we have chaplaincy support. If they have a a social reason for, um, you know, wanting to choose something which may in, in the end actually be very harmful for them. We can help support them from social work aspect. Um, and of course, for symptom management, we have nurses and doctors to do all of that as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is sort of a, a commentary on sort of taking the time to explore thoughtfully what people need and, and, and giving them, giving them a voice. I mean, you know, one of the things that strikes me a little bit is that as an organization, um, we, many people see us as, as the, as the prudent experts, right. In any number of disease processes. And, uh, but we know that the, that the patient and the family are sort of they're, they're, they're telling us where they want to go. So in a sense, if you think about it for just a second, they have a roadmap, they know where they want to go. Right. But we have kind of this GPS that's, you know, I, I know the one in my car, if I miss a turn, it very kindly tells me, Hey, you can still get there, but we, we're going to take another route. Right. Um, and, and so we're sort of, we're sort of being their GPS, but they're telling us the direction that they want to go based on the map that they have, right? That's exactly right. And, and again, you know, I think we're so fortunate in the hospice setting to have the resources to meet them when they take a left turn, when they take a right turn, you know, they may start off and 
in just one arena having specific needs, not even knowing that they're going to have so many other needs down the road, um, which again, you know, most people have very similar end of life experiences as far as, um, you know, we're all going to die one day and, and having the support services available to you when you're, when you're in a hospice program is, uh, it's so beneficial. So I, I absolutely agree with that. It, hospice is sort of your GPS system mm -hmm. because they can tap into whatever resource it is that you need. Right. And, and we take, we try to take, and I think we're learning these conversations that we're having are helping our organization learn how to navigate these in different populations of people much more effectively um, and, and much more confidently, right? Um, I think that's part of our goal too, is as we bring these conversations to the community and to you know, people who are listening to this, it's, it's as much about uh, learning for ourselves as a learning organization, right? Um, how we navigate this best for the populations that we, that we serve and the communities that we work in. So, um, you know, one of the things that, I'm, that I think about a lot is, is how sometimes we hold space, right? Um, many times I think people find um, a need to fill a room or a conversation with words. And sometimes, I mean, What's been your experience in that? You know, I mean, is that a is that is that necessary? Right. Now, oftentimes, you know, it, in order to again get to to meet a person where they're at, you really have to know them, right? You need to, um, you know, two people with the same type, same diagnosis. Um, they may not have the same treatment plan. Mm -hmm. um, that would be beneficial to them. So you really need to hear, hear them beforehand. And I think, you know, that's, that's a, some, that's something that's, that can be very difficult, um, to just sit quietly and, and, and not fill the silence in with words, just because when you ask a difficult question, a patient doesn't want to respond right away. Um, and you know, I, I, I can give you an example myself. I've been doing this for, for a very long time. And, um, a few years back, I went to a conference where, you know, you do small group simulations and um, I've been doing this almost 20 years now. And at that point, you know, it was, it was over 15 years and um, sat down with a mock patient and was explaining what hospice care is. And, and we had a mentor and, and the mentor just stood behind me and kind of did one of those hand flapping things. Um, and, um, basically I was talking too much, right. I had a, a mock patient who didn't want to give me any information. And so I was giving them too much information and it's, you know, it's, it's something that I don't, no matter where you are in your career, how experienced you are, it's something to always bring back to late, that it's super, super important to listen because if not, you're not going to be able to meet people where they're at. You're not going to be able to, to help them because you know, because you didn't take the time. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, exploring our community, navigating health disparities at end of life. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation with Trent and Dr. Muggsy, exploring how health disparities shape end of life experiences and what Hospice of the Piedmont is doing to create more equitable solutions. We hope you will join us. 
Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.